Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you will indeed open up your word to us and cause us to open both our hearts and our hands to you. Magnify yourself. Magnify your salvation among us. And cause the things of this world to grow strangely dim. It is to you, the King of Ages, the Immortal One, the Invisible One, the only God, to whom we joyfully give honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. One of my favorite Christian authors is C.S. Lewis, and one of his most famous books is this book called The Screwtape Letters. And uh, The Screwtape Letters is a series of fictional letters written by a demon named Screwtape to his nephew and his apprentice named Wormwood. And in these letters, Screwtape is trying to help Wormwood know how to excel at his job, which is directing uh, people towards the paths of hell. And Wormwood is given one mission, and it is to lead this middle-aged British man, uh, whose name the patient, uh, is to keep the patient out of the gates of heaven and to keep him on the path to hell. And so Wormwood finds himself on this mission, and he finds it a somewhat difficult mission because this, this man, he's a good man, he's a Christian, he believes in the Lord, he attends church, he cares for his aging and difficult mother with patience. And then the patient is sent off to fight in the war, and Screwtape sees an opportunity. You see, Christian makes some friends with other non-Christian soldiers, and so Screwtape advises Wormwood to start whispering in his ear that because the patient is a Christian, well, he's superior. He wants to work up his pride. Screwtape explains to Wormwood his strategy in this way. I quote, he is perfectly content to you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride, just as he would be quite content to see your blister cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer, end quote. Our text today is 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, if you want to open there. And this is a text that warns us that one of our most dangerous blisters that we might band-aid over is our love of money and our pride that we take in money and possessions. We live in a culture that celebrates consumerism and materialism. Now, wealth is a good gift from the Lord, and it's given for our enjoyment. But wealth is also a danger, and it is a litmus test for us, for the sincerity of our faith, and for our love in God. And so this text just asks us, do we love money or God more? This text tells us that what we need to do is seize eternal good rather than seizing worldly good goods. Seizing eternal good requires us to prioritize God and to prioritize the welfare of others and prioritizing not our wealth but making others and ourselves rich in God. 
Now, this little letter is written to Timothy, and it's written to the Ephesian church. Paul had, uh, he had sent Timothy to the church at Ephesus to give it some needed uh, leadership and some needed stability. There were false teachers active in the church, and they were going house to house, and they were upsetting the faith of faithful believers. And particularly, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6 that they were doing this in order to line their pockets. And this isn't surprising. We know that the church in Ephesus, it was, it was one of the wealthiest cities in the ancient world, which meant that there were wealthy people there. And so these false teachers, they were eager to take advantage of them to line their pockets. And so in chapter 6, from verse 2 all the way to down, six, to, down to verse 16, uh, Paul rebukes these false teachers, and he urges Timothy to be diligent in opposing them. And then in our text, verses 17 to 19, Paul switches his attention from the false teachers to the wealthy in the Ephesian congregation. There he commands them and us by implication to first, in verse 17, to starve their hopes in riches. And then in the latter half of verse 17, he commands them to instead set their hopes on God. And then in verse 18, they are to share their hopes with others. And finally, verse 19, they are to store up hopes in eternity. So in order to pursue godliness and to starve our hope in riches, we need to consider this text. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul tells us, starve our hopes in riches. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And so here's a charge to those who have many earthly possessions, whether that's money or it's uh, earthly goods. And Paul gives them one simple charge. Don't be haughty. They were literally to suffocate and to starve out their love of money and their love of possessions. The rich were to be careful and to protect and to make sure they love God before and over money. And we all have this tendency, don't we, to deceive ourselves into thinking that what we have, that what we've accumulated, that we have gathered it or that we maintain it by our own cunning, by our own wisdom. And then we're, we're tempted to take this thing that we pretend we've obtained for ourselves and we're tempted to put all of our trust in it, our trust in our homes, our goods, our investment portfolios. And we're also tempted to uh, spend what we've received on every comfort and every pleasure that we can find. Now, this text is to the rich, but it, it also has implications for those who uh, are poor and do not have a lot of worldly goods. There can be a temptation to uh, have the same prideful, greedy heart that grumbles because others have what you do not have. And this greedy heart can grumble not only at others, but it can be tempted to grumble and complain and shake the fist at God. All of these attitudes indicate a love and a trust in money. Paul warns in 1 Timothy 6, look up at verse 10. He says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Notice the plural there. And so, 
the rich are to put off prideful superiority. They're also to put off a second part attitude, and that is hoping in uncertain riches. We can all deceive ourselves into thinking that our stability or that our security or even our flourishing and happiness and prosperity are located in riches and the things of this world. Notice that Paul corrects this viewpoint with one simple word, uncertainty. Paul is really teaching the same things which I think Solomon taught in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's there in Ecclesiastes 2 that Solomon tells us, I gained for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings. And then in the rest of chapter 2, he goes on to tell us all the things that he purchased for himself with this gold and silver. And I want to read you a list of these things, but instead of reading you what Solomon says he bought himself, I want to translate them into modern day equivalents that we all might find ourselves desiring. So Solomon purchased himself a daily subscription to concubines.com. He invested in a legitimate liquor cabinet. He built himself a massive farm and he had his own private butcher. And he established a well-stocked theological library. And he had a daily concert package. And he had a host of Uber drivers and gig economy workers to meet his every need and whim. And then he built his very own personal Cherokee Park. And this park was replete with fruit trees and rec fields and workout equipment and lawn games and even a, a championship golf course. There at the end of Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon says, let me tell you what I found out at the end of this endless quest for pleasure. He says, you know what I learned? It was all just vanity. It was a striving after the wind. It was like trying to grab the smoke that pours out of my fancy barbecue smoker. There it was, and it was gone. Now, let's come back to the text, and let's think about this word. <coughs> what is the definition of the word hope? Well, it is just certain expectation. And riches and worldly goods, they give the exact opposite. They give uncertain hope. There is no certainty in them. So there's this irony that we tend to put certain hope in what is itself, by definition, uncertain. Up in verse 7 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul reminds us, we brought nothing into this world. And we cannot take anything out of this world. This reminds us that the uncertainty and the limited nature of our lives puts a huge limit on the value of wealth and possessions. The goods of this world and the riches of this world, they are light and ephemeral. They literally cannot bear the weight that our hope requires. Back in 2011, Bethany and I uh, put a contract on a house in Linden. Bethany was joyfully and unexpectedly pregnant, and so it was time for us to find some stability as a family and uh, so we got ready and we packed our apartment and picked out the wall colors and we're all excited. We'd even drive by that house every other day and just stare at it. And we were, we were just taking a little too much pride in this house that was not even ours yet. And of course, the morning of closing day, the loan officer calls me and she says, uh, we missed some things in your finances. Uh, there's some variables that aren't adding up and you, you, you can't buy the house. Uh, you're going to have to start over. 
And, you know, I, I remember that phone call and it was surreal. It, it felt like I was Aladdin. And here's Jeannie talking to me saying, no quid pro quo, no more wishes for you, buddy. I was, I was tempted to just be completely devastated. I wanted to give stability, this good thing to my wife and to my child who was coming into the world. But it seemed that God instead wanted us to learn to find our stability in him. Look up at 1 Timothy 6.6 where Paul gives us the application. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not just some gain. It is the great gain of this world. And so when I use the word stability, what comes to your mind? What about if I use the word dreams or the word bucket list? What do you begin to imagine? It will reveal to you where you are putting your hope. In his commentary on Ecclesiastes, Philip Ryken discusses this painting called The Moneylender and His Wife. It should be coming up on the screen behind me. And you'll notice that they're there sitting at this desk together and he's counting his money and she's uh, apparently reading what looks to be a Bible. But notice her gaze. Instead of having her gaze fixed on the bread of life, she instead has her gaze fixed on the stuff of life, on the coin that's in his hand. And here the painter is reminding us of what a great distraction away from God that riches can be. And so for those of us with wealth, we need to be warned that anxiety over things like inflation Things like interest rates and investment portfolios, they might reveal a hope in the things of the world. And for those without wealth, we need to be reminded that we can have the same greed. And so our envy of what others have or our grumbling towards God might reveal the same love of money. There's others of us here who just are greedy for sheer enjoyment and leisure, and even idleness. Good things like hobbies, and vacations, and eating out, and the niceties of furniture, and a good home. Listen, these things are good things in and of themselves. But we do need to ask ourselves, do we love the things of this world more than we love our God? We need to ask ourselves, can we be content without them? To those of you here who are young and you're pursuing degrees and you're building your life, I want to urge you to not put your hope on a degree in some lucrative career path. The aim of your life, the goal of your life is not to land a lucrative career and then to be able to afford lots of fun in this world. The aim of your life instead is to pursue and please God and to find your eternal stability in Him. And the truth is we all, you and me both, need to examine our desires and our loves. And so whatever our situation, we all need to be warned. Money, possessions, comfort, and hobbies, they cannot deliver certain hope. They will not give lasting joy. And they certainly will not give us true stability. There's good news. Godliness with contentment, it can bring certain hope. 
It can bring lasting joy. It can bring to us true stability. Money is not the danger. It is a good gift from God. It's given for our use and for our enjoyment. The danger is instead the love of money and the love of this world and the love of the things in this world. We have to remember that sin is not in the stuff. Sin is in our hearts. And we all need to be warned by this text of the perils of pride and covetousness that might steal our hearts away from the living God. So how do we flee such perils? Well, we're tempted to think that the answer is just give all our money away and renounce worldly pleasure. That is not the answer that the Bible gives to us. The Bible says the way that we uh, flee worldly coveting is that we pursue godly loving. And so Paul urges us to starve our hope and riches. Then at the end of verse 17, he commands us, he urges us to set our hopes on God. Look at the second half of verse 17. He says, set our hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the way to starve our sin is to fill ourselves with God. Jesus warned in Matthew 6, verse 24, it's impossible to love God and to love money. And both Jesus and Paul were gravely concerned that the love of this world and the trust in money would steal our hearts away from the love and hope we have in God. And so here Paul is urging us to put all of our hope, to put all of our weight, to put all of our dreams on God. On God who is the eternal giver of life. He's the one who gives life. This is what he does. This is his vocation day in and day out. And because he's the giver of life, guess what? Hope in him is absolutely and completely and forever certain. Riches have no such certainty. These few words here in verse 17, Paul really outlines for us what I would call the ABCs of hope. So first, A, he tells us, We must actively hope in God Himself. The object of our hope must first and always be God. God alone. 1 Timothy 6, verse 13, Paul reminds us why. Well, God is the one, notice what it says in verse 13, who gives life to all things. So God's the creator, but He's not only the creator, He's the continual life giver. He's ensuring that we will never hunger or thirst or lack what we truly need. And here's the path to getting coveting out of our hearts. When we dedicate ourselves to knowing God and serving God and finding life in God, we'll find that the coveting and the grasping just falls away. God is to be our chief pursuit. He's to be our highest good. He's to be our greatest treasure. And so it's only the daily and the diligent pursuit of God that's going to help us to starve our pride and our superiority. And it's going to help us to satisfy our unending craving. This text hints to us what a central gospel issue the love of money is for all of us. We need to literally Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Denying the riches of this world 
and seeking to gain eternal riches. He said in Mark 10, 38, Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And then he says, Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will do what? Will find it. Will find life in God. Now some of us in this room, we know in our hearts that we love the things of this world and we hope in the things of this world more than we love and hope in God. And for you, Jesus is calling you to not only follow in His footsteps, but to put your hope in Him. To repent of your love of money and your love of this world. And to put your faith in His substitutionary and certain atonement. And to become rich towards God. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. God will give you unending joy if you choose to follow Jesus. And He will give you true, eternal stability forever. So we must actively hope in God. B, we must actively hope in God's provision. Look back at 1 Timothy 6, 17, where it says we are to hope on God who provides us with everything to enjoy. God is a faithful provider. This is vocabulary we want to get into our heads. Look up at 1 Timothy 6, 8. He says, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. And so if we're satisfied with God, what we're going to do is find that our list of needs shrinks to a very short list. Jesus commanded us in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all of these things, food and clothing and what we really need, these will be added to you. And so most of us need to shift our vocabulary We need to change what we put in the list of needs, and we need to shift it from the list of needs, and we need to shift it to the list of good desires. And I think what we'll find is that when we find that our loves are rightly ordered, well, then we'll find that our lives are also rightly ordered. And then we'll learn to find that what God has currently given to us is more than sufficient. What we have at present is not only more than sufficient, I think we'll often find it's abundantly generous. And and this realization will help us to choose contentment and to fight that pride and to glory in what God has already laid right before us. And so we hope in God and we hope in God's provision, but see, we must actively hope in God's generosity. 1 Timothy 6, 17, look back there. It tells us that God gives us everything, what? To enjoy. Think on those words. Everything. Enjoy. Let that sit on your heart and mind for just a second. God made us physical beings. And He put us into a physical world. And he called this world good. And he filled it with signs. He filled it with signs of his goodness and his beauty and the joy that is to be had in him. He's, and he's not playing tricks on us with the goodness of this world. 
And that tells us that what he does give us in this world, it ought to be entirely sufficient for us. It's good. All too often, we're tempted to think that following God requires us to pursue a path of poverty and asceticism. This is, this is a pernicious life. This is not what the Bible calls us to. God is the one who gives life and is the one who grants enjoyment. Turn over to 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, just a page back. And some of the false teachers, one of the things they were teaching is they're going around and saying you can't get married and there's certain foods you can't eat. There's these things in life that you, you cannot have. And Paul replies to them just citing the creation account. And he says to them, everything created by God is what? It's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Underline that word thanksgiving in your Bible. Because it helps us to see that gratitude is this foundational discipline in our fight against worldliness. You see, if we see everything as a gift from the hand of God then we're going to look to God with that gift and we're going to say, thank you for your mercy and your grace and your abundant provision. And it's in this Thanksgiving that we'll fight pride and that we'll find true paths to humility and we'll find true paths to choosing contentment. And we will ensure that our loves are rightly ordered, that we do not love the gift over the giver, but that we love the giver all the more because of his generous gift. I once had a good friend who uh, pretty severely confronted me for buying a cup of coffee. We were uh, at a conference together, and I was tired, and so on the lunch break, we walked to Starbucks, and I, I bought a venti cup of Starbucks, praise God for Starbucks, and we're, and we're walking back, and I can tell he's kind of bothered, and, and we get close back to the conference, and he pulls me aside on the sidewalk, and he says, you ought not to bought that cup of coffee. Your wife's back in Louisville working to earn that money you spent on that cup of coffee. And what you should have done is given it to missions. Just step back. Whoa, buddy. Now, listen. He is right. We have an imperative. A good ought to give sacrificially to missions. This should be a priority in our lives. But I'm going to be honest with you guys. I needed that cup of coffee to make sure I could glorify God by not sleeping through the conference. My friend needed to heed this text that God has given us everything to enjoy. And we do not need to experience low-grade guilt in that enjoyment. Do me a favor and turn to Ecclesiastes 5, our Old Testament reading that Clint read to us. We're going to look at verse 18. It's, it's here that really Solomon says the exact same thing. And, and Solomon and Paul's language is so close that I, I think Paul's language in 1 Timothy 6 is perhaps dependent on Solomon's teaching here. Look at verse 18. He says, Behold, what I've seen to be good and fitting, so praiseworthy and appropriate, is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has, notice the language, given him. For this is his lot. We might say, for this is his portion. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth. Don't be surprised by that. And possessions and, and here's the key, power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot. 
read to choose contentment and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. So Solomon says, it's good and it's fitting. It's noble and praiseworthy and entirely appropriate to find enjoyment in this life. And why? Because this is God's gift and it's God's portion to us. And notice that it's God, says Solomon, who gives us the power to enjoy. So here's how this works. If you humbly submit and recognize the givenness of all things from the hand of God, well, then what God's going to do is He's going to reward you with enjoyment. God is not a miser. He is abundantly good and generous. Glance down at Ecclesiastes 6.2 and we see the converse issue. It's talking about a rich and greedy man. And it says that God does not give him power to enjoy his gifts. Why? Because he's apparently greedy and grasping onto the gifts too hard. And he's, he cannot find in himself to say, this is enough. Thank you, God. He always finds himself saying, just a little more, just a little more. And so God does not give him power to even enjoy the ordinary gifts of life. You can turn back to 1 Timothy 6. Let's think about what Solomon's doing here. Solomon is not advising us to be hedonists and to pursue pleasure at all costs. Instead, what he's telling us to do is open up your eyes and look around and look for the gifts that God has already given you. And choose to be content with them. Choose to say thank you and choose to say it's enough. And then take those gifts and out of enjoyment of God, lean into them with all of your heart and enjoy them with all of your might. I think Solomon's imagining something like a simple dinner in a simple home with great friends and family gathered together, eating and laughing and conversing until the night grows long. God's portion to us is the goodness that we find in the everyday gifts of the ordinary life. So let me ask you, what good thing in this world tempts you to feel guilty if you enjoy it? There's a lot of talk in evangelical circles about living a radical life for God and choosing and prioritizing what we might call a wartime lifestyle. Listen, many of us need to hear these exhortations to give sacrificially, to live intentionally for the Great Commission. But we also need to be careful that we don't swing too hard and overcorrect into the ditch of self-righteous asceticism. This is a pernicious lie, and all it is is just pride masked as spirituality. God has made us physical beings. He's put us into a physical world that he called good. And so seashells and goldfish crackers and swims in the ocean and bike rides and dinner with good friends and the laughter of babies and toddlers, all of these things and so much more are given by him as a gift for our enjoyment. And in all the good things that we might experience here on this earth, he has put enjoyment into those things so that we might enjoy him. So that we learn to not love the gift, but because of the enjoyable gifts, we love the giver. Verse 18, 
Paul tells us how to starve our hope in riches. He just told us to set our hopes in God, and now, verse 18, he tells us to share our hopes with others. Look at verse 18. He says they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So here, the rich are urged to pursue the good of others. And the four actions listed here in verse 18, they they naturally flow from a recognition of the givenness of all things. We give because God has given. And we might call these commands the ABCs of godly living. Godly living. So activity A, we're commanded do good. In other words, be eager to commit yourself to serving others. You want to be the kind of person, Jim Jim used to talk about this in the early years of Kimlin, where you walk around with your eyes open and you walk around with your hands open looking for needs to meet. And when you see them, you just decide, well, I saw it first, so it's my obligation and duty and joy to meet that need. And the need might require we share some of our money, but the need might also require that we share other riches that we have, time, energy, skills, maybe our personal space and home. So we're to do good, but we're also activity B, to be rich in good works. And this word rich tells us that we're to be plentiful. We're to be opulent. We're to, uh, instead of being greedy for money, we're to be greedy for good works. Now, let's ask ourselves, what are good works? I, I want you to look over at 1 Timothy 5, verse 10, where we, we get what I might call a, a, a sampling of good works. It's not all the good works we might put in a list, but it is really helpful. Here in 1 Timothy 5, Paul is talking about widows who are qualified to receive financial support and help from the church. And notice it says in 5, verse 10, that, quote, these widows are to have a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Here's a helpful list for us to start. We might turn over to 2 Timothy 3, verse 17, where it tells us that the word of God itself equips us for what? For every good work. And these verses, and there's many more we could turn to, but these verses give us a representative list of what are the good works we are to be zealous for in our lives. Good works, at least, are trusting in God. They are denying self-indulgence. They are raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They're opening up your home and cooking meals and showing hospitality to others, especially those in need, whether it's financial need or they're just in need of encouragement and friendship. It's caring for and providing uh, friendship to the afflicted. And of course, good works are encouraging and exhorting and edifying one another every day with the word of God. And I just, I want us all to notice and observe the logic of the passage. What place do works have in our life and what place do they have in our salvation? Well, our works do not save us. Our faith is what saves us. And that's the exact logic we have here. First, Paul tells us, put your hope in God. And then from that hope flows the fruit of good works. A fruit that proves the sincerity of that hope. 
and faith. So we're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. And C, we're to be generous. What this is talking about is just instead of grasping at the things of the world, we're we're open-handed with our money and with our possessions and with our homes. And again, the principle doesn't just include what we own and possess, but it includes our time. It includes our energy. It includes our capacities and our skills and anything that is a resource. So here's just easy application for all of us. Be generous to this church, both with your money and with your time. Be generous to our missionaries with your time and with your friendship. Be attentive and be generous and be on the lookout for those in our midst who are needy. And be glad and open-handed with them. So we're to do good. We're to be rich in good works. We're to be generous. And finally, activity D, we're to be ready to share. Now this word ready has two ideas packed into it. The first is this idea of being prepared. We want to plan our lives and we want to plan our finances and plan our calendars in such a way that we store up capacity to serve others. We create room to be able to give time and energy and money to others. And and this idea of being a ready giver, it also speaks to this idea of not only being prepared, but also of being a glad giver. We don't want to give begrudgingly. What do we have that we have not received? God has given to us so generously. So we want to receive that with open hands and then we want to hold it out to open hands around us. Have you ever heard of C.T. Studd? C.T. Studd was a 19th century professional cricket player and he inherited this large fortune. But the Lord saved him and and he developed a a white-hot zeal for the Lord and for evangelism. And so he decided to make himself instead rich in God. Here's what he said at the time. What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I know that cricket would not last and honor would not last. And nothing in this world would last. But it was worthwhile living for the world to come. End quote. And so he gave away every penny of his massive fortune. He gave it to George Mueller's work with the orphanage there in Britain. And he sailed to China and he gave his life as a missionary to God, serving others and making others rich in God in China and in India. He traded the riches of the world And he decided to instead make others rich in God. Now, some of you in this midst, in our midst, you have chosen the path of missions. That is wonderful. And you are to be commended for that. But we also need to realize missions is is not the only path that God has commended to those of us in our midst. Whatever our path that God has set us on, whether it's missions or education or raising a family or some other wonderful godly calling, God is calling all of us to make joyful and even painful sacrifices so that we can see others made rich in God. 
And then just think about the plethora of one another's that are in the New Testament. And all of these one another's tell us that we, we want our goals in life to make our families rich and to make this church rich in the good things of the Lord. We want to see our families flourish and we want their spiritual flourishing to be our primary preoccupation. And as we come here to church and we worship alongside the saints, we want to serve them and we want to make the church and the flourishing of this body and the richness of this body in God, we want to make that the center of our lives and our very priority. Why? Because God has said it's good for us to do this, but also because this is how we fight the love of money. We fight the love of money by pursuing the good of others. When our loves are rightly ordered, we will find our lives are as well rightly ordered. And so we starve our hopes and riches. And we set our hopes on God's. And we share our hopes with others. And then finally, we store up our hopes in eternity. Look at verse 19. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So Paul ends his exhortation here with a word to the rich about investment. He urges the rich to invest in eternal life. He says, don't grasp riches. Instead, grasp hold of eternal life. And here the goal is not obtaining eternal life. It's just we can buy ourselves into heaven. Our works do not save us. It's our hope in God alone that saves us. So what Paul is doing here is he's giving motivation for serving others and for being open-handed with our money and our possessions. Now, the, the Bible has a lot to say about heavenly reward. And our chief reward is going to be uh, the eternal new heavens and new earth and friendship with God forever. But we also are going to receive real rewards from the Lord for what we have sacrificed here on this earth. And what a deal... That God is going to give us. He says to all of us. Give me your transitory wealth. And I will give to you. With much interest. Permanent and eternal wealth. This is worth it. Especially when you consider. The comparison between. The length of our time here on earth. And the length of time we'll spend. In the new heavens and the new earth. We will spend a vastly. Disproportionate amount of time. In the new heavens and the new earth which should encourage us to prioritize investing in a heavenly retirement fund. Now, it's wise to build savings and uh, to have a retirement here on this earth. Proverbs 13.22 says that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. But what we do want to do is make sure that we diversify our portfolio and make sure that we put the weight of our investment on eternity and making others rich. And God. The grace of God, I have this other C.S. Lewis essay uh, ingrained in my heart and mind. It's this essay, The Weight of Glory. And no doubt you've heard the quote from this essay. C.S. Lewis says, quote, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, 
Because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Then he ends the quote with, we are far too easily pleased. And Lewis is exactly right. Godliness and the pursuit of God is not the absence of desire. Instead, the pursuit of God is pursuing what is the greatest desire. And so being rich in this life and being rich towards God does not mean that we pursue the path of poverty and asceticism. Instead, it means that we, we hold our goods with an open hand. We recognize and take rejoicing in the givenness of all things. And then we share those goods with others and we invite others to enjoy and see that the Lord is good. And then as we trust God and we share, we, we actually enable ourselves to participate in eternal life now. Enjoying all the good things that God has richly provided us. Let me pray. Father, we want to be those who set our hope on you. We want to imitate the generous fountain of life that you are. By being a generous fountain of life to others. Help us also to pursue gratitude to choose contentment and to find enjoyment in all the good gifts that you've already placed in our hands. To the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in inapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to you, Lord, be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. Thank you.